right. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics and Pints here on Jackman Radio. I'm one half of Jackman Radio, Eric Jackman. Very happy to be with you today. Thank you for tuning in. And I um, have a very special and unique guest joining me today, um, I believe from California, Miss um, Priti Upala. She's a Dharma ambassador. She's an actress, an author, um, a researcher, um, a journalist. I mean, she does a lot of different things. So, Priti, thank you for joining me today. Namaste, everyone, and namaste, Eric. It's a, a pleasure to be here with you. It's always an honor to speak to uh, people on the political spectrum who have all sorts of interesting views and to see maybe where we converge. And when we look at the global landscape, uh, where we are at, because we are going through a massive churn, I think. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I love connecting with people um, from all stripes. And I know before we were uh, rolling here, we were talking about, you were kind of wondering what my political leadings were and, and uh, where I am on the spectrum. And you're absolutely right. I'm kind of, you know, I try to be pretty rational and reasonable about it. And um, I think the extremes on both sides of the spectrum have gone off way too far. And, you know, oftentimes that puts off your everyday average person and um, a lot of younger people like millennials my age from wanting to get involved in politics. So, yeah. So are you, you're, you're in Beverly Hills? Is that where you're located? Are you quarantining in Beverly Hills? Well, you know, look, I think the lucky thing about lockdown in California is it's beautiful. It's perfect weather every day. It's sunny. And we have a lot of space and people are allowed to drive and walk around wherever they want. And all the shops are open, but takeaway is there and the stores are open. You can go and get things and uh, some beaches are closed, but some parks are open and or around the park is open. So you can find some picnic spots. I've, I've been doing a lot of picnics and driving up to Malibu and all that good stuff. And time to get away as well for like a short trip so i am very productive this has been uh, actually a, a godsend for me because i'm writing a book and it actually gave me the space and time to just um you know uh, get myself uh, uh, very disciplined and get on with my book because before that it was just i wasn't giving it the time that it needed so it worked out quite karmically br- perfect for, for myself I, let's say yeah, no, that's, um, there couldn't be a better time to be uh, writing a book, I mean, with, with everything. Now, is that the book you're working on, is that called The Eternal Gift? You know, it's, that's a good question. Uh, it, the Eternal Book was um, a book that I started uh, last year, but this particular book, I'm doing a treatment for it, and, and it's act, I think you'll, enjoy, you'll, you'll be fascinated. It's actually on feminism, and, but it's looking at the journey of feminism and and actually taking quite a critical view of it, of what it's morphed into. Because I think people don't want to touch the subject, but uh, there is a lot to touch, let's say. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm going to go there. So, uh, And I think you need, I mean, like if some white dude wrote this book, they would butcher him. You know? <laughs> and I think coming from a young woman, especially myself, you know, I probably tick all the intersectional boxes, even though I hate identity politics. I mean, it does. You got to, hey, use it or lose it, baby. You know, you got to make it work for you sometimes. Oh, I think it's going to be a fascinating read. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. So what is your perspective on feminism? What does feminism mean to you? You know, real feminism is about your feminine essence. And feminine essence is about sensuality. It's about softness. It's about 
vulnerability, openness, what makes a woman a woman and has for thousands of years. Uh, you look at the feminist uh, activists today, that is not what they portray at all. It's, it's the opposite of that. So it's, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that it's morphing into something quite unpalatable uh, to men and women. And also they're hijacking a lot of uh, kind of uh, political and uh, social uh, uh, scenarios, let's say. And I think uh, they're weaponizing victimhood and the whole feminist, feminism is being weaponized, let's say. And I don't think it's uh, healthy for our future. I think I know a lot of young men and, and boys are uh, just not able to be the man that we all want them to be. And uh, there's so much talk about toxic, toxic ma masculinity, but uh, there is such a thing as masculinity too, which is beautiful and needed, and you need it for the uh, yin-yang balance or the Shiva Shakti, as I like to say, which is, it's the dance between the male and the female, you know. That's a beautiful dance. And, and I touch on ancient traditions, which don't have this problem. And they actually uh, dance with each other quite nicely, and they are just a reflection of the other. One isn't better than uh, the other, right? They sort of marry in. And that's what yoga really is. It's the union of uh, male, male, female, uh, yourself and the divine, all of that good stuff. So uh, I'm coming at it from a very, very holistic, nuanced perspective. Well, that is awesome. I'll certainly like to read that when that comes out, because I really believe yes. we need a more nuanced and balanced approach okay. to the sexes. I mean, and that's the thing. You have a crowd who doesn't even want to acknowledge that there are differences between men and women. And then yes. you have the crowd that can go too far in one way saying, you know, the a man or a woman is superior to the other. And I really like what you said there, that we are really equal in yes. many ways, and we are different in many ways. Yes. And we have to, you know, be honest about the reality of that. And, um, you know, I was lucky and, and privileged enough to um, grow up with my father. Um, I had him for 30 years. He unfortunately passed oh. away three years ago from brain cancer. But um, oh. he, he embodied uh, great masculinity, you know, in that he was a very caring person. He was a very thoughtful yes. person. Um, but also the physicality of a man. He was a contractor. He sold cars. He was a mechanic. He could build houses. He could sew. Um, he could he could do electrical work. Um, you name it, the guy could do anything. And he was a hockey player. He was from Canada originally. Wow. Yeah, he's from uh, Newfoundland, out in the ocean. So you're you're half Canadian. Yeah, yeah. My dad was. My dad was Yep. My dad uh, was born in Newfoundland and actually yeah. uh, immigrated to Ventura, California in 1965 when he was 10 years old. Um, oh. So hockey was a big part of me growing up, that real masculine uh, energy and sport. And, yeah. and, and that energy, my, my dad helped me channel that towards hockey and something productive and not destructive. So um, there certainly is, uh, there's toxic masculinity and then there's good yeah. masculinity. And, um, you know, my dad said a good... Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go on. <laughs> yeah, so he set a good example for that. And, and I certainly believe, you know, it can go feminism and uber masculinity can go um, into the extreme for both men and women. So we have to always find that balance. That's true. I think uh, the uh, narrative is that people aren't willing to agree that they are uh, extremes. They say, no, 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 the extreme is only on, on the on the male side, uh, but uh, we've seen, I think, the Me Too movement, the Time's Up, uh, what's going on right now as well, 
uh, and I mean, I don't know what your take on Biden is, but uh, you know, where are all the Brett Kavanaugh people? You know, <laughs> I mean, come on, talk about hypocrisy. I think the far left just keeps eating itself. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're like champions of self goals, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they don't even need a Trump. They just do it all by themselves. And and as an outsider, I, I just observe and I think, and the left or the far left in every country is the same. India is no different, trust me. Or Australia is no different either. And it's it's just all shades of like, um, uh, you know, madness, I think, and uh, absurdity. And you, it's like a soap opera. You just kind of watch the whole thing unfold. It's like a live car crash waiting to happen. Um, yeah, but we just hope, I just hope that they don't, they've already taken over ma- mainstream media and ac- academia, and I don't want them to, to sort of uh, permeate through even more uh, facets of society, because kids are very um, impressionable, and you see a lot of uh, university students come out with a very different view of life than what really is. They live in some kind of delusional utopia that doesn't exist and it's very dangerous because the, the big bad world out there is not like that and it, it leads you up or you will it'll, uh, push you to one extreme and then you end up becoming the very people that you despise and I see it happening right with all this uh, campus uh, uh, violence and uh, deplatforming uh, and all that stuff uh, and it and political I mean I'm waiting for the civil unrest to, un, uh, to unravel because it will I think that day is not far off. Yeah, well, you asked where are all of the uh, Kavanaugh people, and all of, most of them are trying to become Biden's running mate. That's, <laughs> that's where they are. you got your Klobuchar, your Kamala Harris, your Liz Warren, um, your Kirsten Gillibrand. They were all pants on fire when it was Kavanaugh, but now that there's a credible source of um, uh, alleging sexual assault on Tara Reid's uh, account against Biden, you hear crickets. That's true. It's very so. sad, uh, but I'm I'm a great believer in uh, in karma, hmm. and I think that ultimately the truth triumphs, especially in these political scenarios. It all always ends up working out in, in that way. So I think we just have to be patient, and time will tell. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly find her allegations to be credible. I mean, my my take on it is if if I were a woman and I knew that I was going to come out in this day and age and I was on social media and I became a public figure, why would you put yourself in that position to take on so much scorn and ridicule and attack if there was if it wasn't true what you were saying? That's true. So, and, you know, knowing how power works, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, powerful men, that, that's, that's like as old as time, that tale, the tales of abuse and being corrupt and um, shaming their victims and not allowing them to come forward. I mean, that's, that's, you know, how the game has worked for so long in Washington and, you know, around the world. I'm sure you could speak to it with yeah. India, but um, yeah. power, that, that's how power is. And at the end of the day, it is just people. So, People need to be held accountable, and you know, just because you're rich and powerful doesn't mean you should be um, beyond uh, accountability. That's true. I mean, bigotry, racism, discrimination, uh, harassment, abuse happens around the world on all levels uh, of society. In every industry, has been forever and and will be forever too. That's just human nature uh, manifest, and uh, to uh, just pick and choose is, is very dangerous or, or to pretend that it doesn't exist 
or to pretend that, that that's all that there is and you're going to live your whole life with this huge kind of burden uh, and, and not even try uh, to, to be better uh, or maybe what happened to your ancestors. Hey, genocide has happened to every race out there, right? It's no, nobody's domain and everyone's been persecuted. And you, you, just, you, you just get up and, and brush it off and you, you try your best and you try to be a good human being and, and fulfill your purpose in life, you know, and you do the best that you can with the cards that you're dealt. But I'm seeing uh, way too much victimhood and it's a lot of, uh, it's just interesting, uh, their idea of persecution, you know, it's kind of very perceived. Uh, or they're as sort of value, uh, kind of judging it in a way and saying my persecution is better than yours and my victimhood is better than yours. And this is another line from the left playbook, you know, which really is very irksome because then you're actually denying uh, legitimate, uh, you know, abuse or harassment that happens on, on to the other side. You want to pretend that that no, that they're not. Uh, uh, abused or uh, they, they don't have feelings they're also not human you know that they also don't go through the same crap that you probably do you got to find the middle ground if anything so uh, yeah yeah absolutely i mean people um like to dehumanize other people and their yes. perceived opponents and divide and conquer and put put ourselves on teams and go against each other and um you know like i was saying to you before we were rolling here that's very much what drew me to tulsi gabbard's 2020 campaign <laughs> And why I, you know, got on board with her so early and was one of her biggest people here in New Hampshire was really her posture and her willingness to talk to people you don't agree with, uh, kind of like the old days as a human being, as someone, just because we don't agree doesn't mean we can't be friends and get along and work together to find some common ground. So here in New Hampshire, I mean, we saw people who were Trump supporters, independents, progressives, um, libertarian type people, very pro-military people were coming to Tulsi's events just simply because they wanted to know more and they were very uh, attracted to someone like that. So um, when did you first hear about Tulsi Gabbard? I had heard about, so it's interesting when I first, I heard about her years ago, I think I saw a photo of her and I, I thought she was an, an Indian woman because she looks hmm. very Indian and her <laughs> name is obviously it's very Indian. Right. right. And I just thought, okay, this is a very beautiful uh, composed Indian woman. I like her. I, I want to back her, you know, whatever her journey uh, ends up being. And then I, I think I uh, looked her up when uh, maybe when Joe Rogan and them were talking about it. And then I realized she's not Indian. She's American Samoan. Uh, but she just looks very Indian, which is great. But she's a Hindu and I'm a Hindu too, a very proud one. So I just thought that uh, she was incredible because especially from that, uh, from the religious aspect, uh, I don't think we have uh, representation in this country. Uh, now, the sort of Hindu-American population is, what, 3 million, I think, or maybe a little mm -hmm. bit more than that in America. And they happen to be the most educated and wealthiest ethnic group because the Indian Americans are, but 85% of that group are Hindus anyway. So we have so much influence and we've done so well for ourselves and been model citizens for decades, right, and contribute, and uh, you know, every seventh doctor in America is Indian, and and yet we don't have clout in the political sphere. We don't have clout with policy. We do uh, have people running and winning, which is great, but they don't necessarily bring issues that are 
uh, uh, resonant with the community. You know, they're just people who happen to be Indian, let's say, and run and win. And ironically, they win on a minority card, but they don't actually put forward the minority issues, which, are, which is really, really sad. And that's happening today. Uh, but she was one who openly spoke about religious bigotry in this country and the, the double standards that happen within faith in not just here, but around the world where some faiths are deemed as more persecuted than others when the history will tell you something very different. You know, I would say that Hindus as a people, I mean, obviously Hindu civilization is the oldest and uh, unbroken continuing one in the world, but um, they're also the most, one of the most persecuted, if not the most, you know, the most genocided and talk about Jewish people and their atrocities. I mean, we've had equal uh, things like that. I mean, uh, Churchill alone uh, did much similar damage and nobody wants to touch that, you know. So uh, we are a, a group that has been you know, persecuted and whatnot for thousands of years, but we don't play victimhood very well. We don't mm. uh, talk about it. I think it's a great saying, uh, Hinduism doesn't um, uh, do well with victimhood. If you want to be a victim, find another faith which is so true because if we just brush it off and you know we come we've come with nothing and look we are the ceos of the top companies in, in in america today but politically you know we're too busy winning spelling bee tests and becoming professors and doctors and we forget and then we look at the policy it's very antagonistic and there's all kinds of uh lies being peddled and she was a great uh representation i think or an example of the the kind of anti-india or the anti-hindu i think bias that exists very subversively uh i don't want to say pan america but definitely in certain sections of the political spectrum and it was really disgusting to watch when you think are you seriously um criticizing this and not this stuff which is much worse and quite a threat to our humanity, uh, you know, as, as uh, per se. So, so she was great to highlight all of that. Uh, I think she's a brave woman. She was proud of her faith, let's say, and she because you can be very subtle about it. And you know, I mean, look at Nikki Haley, right? She she's Indian. Uh, she yeah. was a Sikh. I think she's kind of half Christian, half Sikh now. Uh, she's proud of her roots, but she doesn't sort of. That's not her main thing, you know. She doesn't go on about it. Um, but uh, but but I think Tulsi really. We needed someone, I think, to speak to uh, the, the the faith at large, and she did that, and we we loved her for it. Um, I, look, I believe in divine timing. I think that she has a long career ahead of her, no matter what she decides to do. And uh, when she announced that she was running, I just thought this too soon. I thought. 2024 would have been the time for her to just jump at it. But then on the, on the other hand, I think maybe it was, I think it was karmic that somebody had to step up on the scene and talk about the issues that she did, you know, whether it was the, um, the anti-war thing or the bigotry or uh, being proud of uh, patriotism and military and, uh, you know, things that are so American and one should be so proud of it. Like she was a nationalist and I like that about her. And she was also someone, I think, who could cross aisles easily. And you can't say that about most people, especially on the left, right? But for those reasons, I thought she was very important. Um, I don't see anything as good 
or bad. I think in life, I think everything's meant to be. It's perfectly orchestrated. It's divinely beautiful. Uh, her karma will unfold as it does. And I just want to see her go to the heights of success and happiness. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, that was something that was refreshing about Tulsi. I mean, obviously her Hindu faith is very important to her. It's a big part of our identity, but she's also very accommodating and wel welcoming of people of other faiths and also people who, who don't have faith. So I'm personally an atheist. I don't, I don't uh, have any faith. I don't, I don't have a church or a religion or anything like that. And, you know, in my younger years, I used to be a lot more of like a, a, a militant atheist and then really wow. like yeah, big you don't on that because that becomes a religion on its own. It's well, that's that was going to be exactly my point. You know, really, I was really big into Richard Dawkins and Christopher. Yeah, right. Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, uh, Richard uh, Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. Um, and they have a lot of great things to say, but that's exactly, you're exactly right. You, the, the, it becomes a church of non-belief. It becomes a cult of non-belief. And yeah. then you just, you, you, you are now boxing yourself into becoming the very thing that you purport to be against. Yes. So I, um, you know, I, 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 I don't have the answers. I don't know one way or the other, if there's a God or if there's not a God or, or what's going on out there. But I think certainly it pays to be as accommodating and respectful as possible to other yeah open and and you know so you you want that respect to be paid to you and you want to be able to pay that to other people yeah. so um you know being an atheist i i can talk to anybody i i don't I, no one no one is um no one is out of out of the conversation yeah, yeah. or or um you know beyond talking to and actually during the campaign um tulsi liked to try to get to a church uh every sunday if she could wow. and um i was able to connect her with a local church here in new hampshire that's like a very conservative socially conservative evangelical christian type place and my connection to it was a personal connection um a friend of mine who i grew up with um he's from a, he's from a finnish family from finland we have a lot of Finns in this area and uh, we grew up together and he served in the Marine Corps. So he really liked Tulsi's military service. And, um, you know, I, I got, got her the invite to the church and uh, I accompanied her to a, you know, church. Uh, I guess you could call it service there for a couple hours. And it was interesting, you know, so you have an atheist sitting next to a, the first Hindu member of Congress at a evangelical church but that would that's what's so cool about Tulsi is she's you know she's yeah. really cool with everybody and even if you don't don't agree or you're from a different yeah. faith or no faith she's she's very warm and open so that that's that's a sign of a real leader in my view it is and also it reflects the Hinduism uh, itself because Hinduism is like that we have you know you can be an atheist and still be and still call yourself a Hindu is a, a percentage of I mean it's an actual sect it's not just atheist in name only you, you can reject the vedas you can reject the concept of god and the concept of spirit and still be proud of your i guess hindu heritage or the values that hinduism stands for uh like you know uh, things like ahimsa and karma dharma artha moksha all those wonderful things that are you know these are universal sort of principles um for me religion i sort of break it up into two uh, it, i have abrahamic religions on the one hand and then i have I call them karmic faiths, and those are Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. And of course, you—I mean, you could—you could have Zoroastrianism and Baha'i there as well, I guess. And, but they are not—it's not dogmatic. It's not—you um, know—there's no prophet, there's no book, uh, there's no like God or messenger as such. It's just uh, 
traditions, a set of traditions, it's a sort of uh, ancient wisdom, uh, really spiritual technology. And uh, the difference between them is with the Abrahamic religions, uh, what they lack is mutual respect. You know, they will give you secularism. You know, you are obviously allowed to have your, to practice whatever faith you like, and there is separation of church and state. But what, what you don't find is uh, a genuine uh, acceptance, uh, respect and acknowledgement that the other person has a different path. And it may be a, a path that's different to yours, but it's theirs and they, it's their prerogative to, um, to walk on that path. And uh, this whole proselytization, uh, you know, we don't have conversions in, in, in Hinduism or Buddhism or Jainism. Nobody, you know, that's not, we don't, we also don't have apostates because nobody sort of comes and leaves in that way. Um, I mean, you could, but, you know, they, certainly there's no death penalty for it. Uh, but, but that's a big difference, you know, that mutual respect and also the exclusivist mentality that there's only one God, one book and one prophet. And if you don't believe in him, you're going to hell, you know, <laughs> that's not the idea that I grew up with. And that's a big difference between, and you look at India, it's like 1.3 billion people, every religion under the sun, uh, you know, so diverse, a thousand languages. Why are they... Um, you know, I would really say very, very peaceful and harmonious for the most part. They have for thousands of years because of the Hindu ethos, which is, you know, acceptance, plurality, tolerance, and all those things. That's the very fabric. Uh, but we are being see, uh, we, are, we are seeing that being um, attacked in so many ways, which is really uh, perverse and sinister, I think, from the naysayers, let's say, or people who have an agenda. So we'll, we'll get into that maybe later, but... Uh, uh, yeah, just to share with you my thoughts on, on religion. Yeah, no, that, that's great. And, you know, growing up, um, a lot of my early exposure to uh, India and, you know, Krishna and that was uh, George Harrison's music. He was oh, my, yeah. he's my favorite yeah. Beatle. And my dad played me the Beatles when I was like 10 years old. And um, some of the first songs I remember were like Norwegian Wood and Across the Universe that had the sitar in it. And I'm like, wow, what is, what is that instrument? And then that led me to oh, Ravi Shankar. And uh, that was kind of, those are my earliest memories of anything having to do with India. I think that's for most, for, for many Americans. And, I mean, when you look at this hippie movement, what was that? That was people that were done with the war. They were tired of everything wrong in this country. And they were, they just wanted a better way. And, and then came Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and, uh, you know, Yogananda and the spiritual gurus started coming in. And, uh, you know, you have Beatles and several other people who sort of found the, that truth, I guess. And uh, then this hippie movement was people essentially kind of looking East and kind of almost like quasi semi-Hindu almost with Kirtan and mm -hmm. vegetarianism and uh, uh, the music, uh, meditation, uh, yoga yeah. and all that stuff. Right. And, and I think out of the four Beatles, George was really the one who took to it the most and really stuck to it for the rest of his life. After the, yeah, real seeker. And um, obviously, Ravi Shankar was like a father figure to him. And, um, you know, I, I feel George probably did a good job of uh, representing that yeah. faith and that movement. Do you feel I like he did? He did. And also, speaking of Ravi Shankar, I had the great privilege of uh, going to his last concert, which happened, I think, in November 2013, I believe. I, I was actually invited, uh, my, uh, it was a newspaper that contacted me and said, 
would you like to interview Ravi Shankar? He's 93 and he's <laughs> doing a show in Long Beach. And I said, yes. So I interviewed him uh, and oh, I cool. had the interview. And, uh, and then he said, would you like to, have you ever seen me? I said, no. He said, I'd like to give you two free tickets. Please come and watch the show. And oh, cool. I did with a friend. We went to Long Beach. We watched this. Guy's 93. And he's having a kind of a nirvana experience on stage. And because I asked him these questions, I said, you are, what's going on on stage? He said, I don't know. Something clicked over. I, all I am is present. I'm having a spiritual experience on stage. And I just thought he was so connected to the divine. And then I went to his, his show. And then in December, that, that the very next month, he, he passed away. So I'm, I might be, have been the last person to interview him. And, uh, and that was his last concert. So I'm very blessed. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. I had never gone to see him. Um, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he and his daughter um, performed um, a lot of Indian music for the concert for George on the anniversary of George's wow. death at Royal Albert Hall in London. And um, that's the first half of the concert is just a lot of that Indian music and sitar that George really enjoyed and, and was really big on while he was alive. So um, yeah, I, I think that stuff's beautiful. And um it's um I also like George's um tying in of Krishna and all that really rejecting rejecting materialism. And he had the song Living in the Material World and I'm not a very materialistic person. I, I kinda okay. I I have somewhat of a minimalist approach to life. I don't I don't like I don't want to have I don't like to have a lot of clutter around me and a lot of junk or just stuff that if you have it around you it, it just takes up your energy and your attention and you're worrying about it. So I think the less you own, the more clear-minded you can be. That's you know so what I mean? True. Well, it's all Maya anyway. I think uh, we we are, you know, we are so connected, uh, so consumed, and I think so attached to the Maya, the illusion, the illusory world. But uh, it, it's not real. <laughs> it's all Maya, <laughs> and it's, it's not here to stay. And this is a lila. It's a divine play. We're just actors playing a part, and we'll, we'll say our lines and we'll play our, our bit and that's it. We exit stage right, you know, that's, that's life. And the beauty of looking at life that way is don't get attached to anything, be present. The only thing uh, available or important is the present moment. Nothing else actually exists, right? It's just that breath. The, the breath is all you have, the, uh, the pranayam. And uh, you just try to be truth. In, in, mm. in each breath, you know, and then you're good. Yeah, well, this idea that we're just pure consciousness inside of a physical suit, you know, our, our bodies. And um, yeah, it's just a passing moment, a fleeting moment. And the real important things, at least my, my takeaway being here on earth for 33 years, the most important things to me are my family and my friends and seeing them and being with them and spending real quality time and having deep conversations and, you know, doing meaning, meaningful things with them. So to me that that's that's it i mean that's that's the uh that's love to me yeah. and then and that's one of the re one of the things that keeps me going especially during this yeah. whole virus deal oh wow yeah and the virus and the political spectrum too so much venom and toxicity and you have to just know that all there is is love that's the only thing real everything is just it's not not real and people are getting attached to what's not real and more so than ever i think that um, I mean, I think this, in some way, this virus is is a paradigm shift. Uh, it is transformational. People, whatever is, uh, was not real, especially in Hollywood and LA, 
I think people were living very uh, inauthentic lives. Mm. They're just kind of busy doing nothing and running around chasing their tail. And <laughs> this virus actually forces them to stop that cycle. And they're, they're forced to just be with them, ask themselves, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Mm. And, uh, you know, for the first time maybe ever, they're contemplating about their reason for being and all these, all these essential questions of the existence. And I think when, this final, when the lockdown finally gets unlifted, uh, I think people will be mellow. And I just feel that there is going to be some real, genuine uh, shift in people's vibrations and consciousness. It has to, and I think the industry will change forever. And I, I don't want to see the, the Beverly Hills housewives again. I don't want to see all that crap reality show, man. Life is too short for all of that. I mean, if one thing good about this, um, this COVID is we're, nobody cares about them. Nobody cares about celebrities and people that we put up on a pedestal who honestly don't touch us. They're so inconsequential. Or I would even say that about athletes, you know, or all these famous people. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what are they to you? They're, well, we're finding out in society who, who we're all standing on the backs of, and yeah. those are our healthcare yeah. workers, those yeah. are nurses, doctors, grocery store clerks, people who work in the food services, people who work in meat processing, uh, farmers, pickers. Delivery, Amazon. Uh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> right. Those, oh, yeah. those are the people we should worship and build stadiums yes. for. Not, like you said, these vapid actors and actresses and millionaire athletes who get paid millions of dollars to pay, play a child's game, you know? So you're right. It's a chance to really pause and slow things down, which I think is great. And to take a look and take inventory of what is actually important during our existence. And those things that we've had beat into our brains since day one from Hollywood and the media and sports Mm -hmm. and uh, whatever else industry that doesn't really mean anything. It's just uh, clutter of the mind and and nonsense and meaningless. And, um, you know, I've certainly relished in that ability to, 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 to do a pause and, take a breather and, and really take inventory of what's important. Absolutely. I'm just excited. I can't wait to travel because I, so I speak a, a lot around the world. Uh, and I had so many speaking gigs that got kind of postponed. So I can't wait uh, to, to travel again and go to these uh, fundraisers and events that I was speaking at because they were all so amazing. And, uh, you know, but I've also made incredible connections. And I've used this time so wisely and I'm doing, every day I have a media interview or a podcast or something, but recently I got invited to speak, give lectures on politics and whatnot to thousands of uh, students around the world. The last one I did had 10,000 kids uh, tune in and I, I, it was at 3.30 a.m. that I started <laughs> my thing, it went for two hours. That's amazing. What? I mean, is it, people are so hungry for political truth, you know. Yeah. How What's going on? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and um, people people are seeing too here in America how really flawed our system is. Our system was not ready for something like this, and yeah. it, it goes beyond a Democrat and a Republican lens. You can't look America, at it through. A- I, yeah, it's a, they. I. You know, this is actually very good for. Uh, kind of a wake-up call, I think, for this great country to 
because it always goes on about it's the greatest country in the world and this and that. I mean, I, I don't, I, I would challenge that. I would say that it's got a, the best system in the world to, that is fair for anybody who's willing to work hard and do what it takes to become successful. And yes, freedom and independence are treasured here. I would, I would leave it at that because, I mean, you can't really go on about talking about civilization because there is no civilization to talk about and all of that great lineage, right? So it's, it's very different what it offers. It's very important what, what it offers. But it, I think this shows that it was, number one, not, not ready, not prepared. Um, and also, uh, you look at, uh, you know, geopolitics right now. I mean, they didn't step up. You know, who is holding? I mean, we know who let the dogs out, right? So nobody's holding anybody accountable. And I thought that the West was this great, you know, moral police in the world that's going to put their foot down and, and really take action on the perpetrators. Well, uh, that, was, that hasn't happened. <laughs> in fact, it's all going to be huggy-huggy from now. I know, and even more business, you know, more trade. Pretty, are you talking about those losers in China, <laughs> the, the Wuhan lab and the Chinese, Pretty? <laughs> yeah, look, I'm oh. gonna I'm gonna be so strong. I've been so tough on China, okay, this whole time. Trump is the toughest president ever on China, okay? Everyone else were losers, quite frankly, okay? <laughs> well, the, well tr I mean, President, Mr. President, yes, you, you said all the right things, but where is the action, baby? <laughs> look, we're working on it, okay? All the politicians, they're all talk, no action. Trump, I'm all action all the time. Just ask Stormy Daniels, okay? <laughs> That's so I don't think anybody wants to ask her. I mean, was she actually running? She wasn't running. No, her, her, her lawyer was. Oh, my God. No, that's monstrous. The creepy creepy porn lawyer, Michael Avenatti, ended up in prison. Isn't that unbelievable? How's that for karma? Where he belongs, yeah. Um, no, Stormy Daniels ran. She was running for the Senate years ago in Louisiana, uh, oh, wow. like 06 or 07, before the whole Trump thing. Um, you know what? Most Americans don't really give a damn about Trump. Uh, having an affair with her people don't care don't. about that no, because don't. that's what Paul that's what politicians do they cheat on their wives they have mistresses they sleep with porn yeah, stars yeah, yeah. they all do it we, uh, we appoint people to run the country what they do with their personal uh, yeah. you know or the body uh, I don't care. no we don't I, I would rather some some you know foo-foo kind of you know maybe questionable uh, personal character but really good on policy and economic and reforms and national security than someone who is great with the other stuff but terrible with running economies and bad foreign policy and uh, just uh, you know uh, kind of the vision that they have is really dangerous and there's a lot of politicians in, in, in that uh, with that sort of narrative going on and uh, I, I think it's dangerous you gotta be I think people need to prioritize what they want in a leader because no one. Yeah. So every leader around the world is is flawed. You know? Oh, of course. So overall, what is, what is your take on on the king? Do you like Trump? What's what's your uh, what's your perspective on him? What do you like about him? What don't you like about him? That's a great question. For me, see, I'm not and just an American citizen looking at this from that point of view. Uh, I, you know, I'm Indian. Uh, that's very important to me and also my my faith is very important to me and also as a global citizen right i care about geopolitics i care about what's going on in the middle east and in afghanistan and all that so when i wear the hat of you know global citizen indian uh, or a geo 
political sort of analyst, I look at uh, the president or him or any leader, I have different criteria. You know, these other things don't bother me. I care about, you know, uh, does he have the right briefings? Is he, is he uh, in line with, with the facts and the truth with what's really going on? And does he have good people around him and so on? So I think the Indian-US relation has been very antagonistic for the past, I would say, 70 years since independence because um, the US, for some reason, has always kind of um, done things very antagonistic to its allies. Uh, for example, propping up military dictatorships in the region, and uh, especially, I think, specifically with Pakistan, I think that's the big elephant in the room. They have funded it for decades, you know, given billions in aid that never went to infrastructure development. It just went to their nuke program mm -hmm. and it went to their international terror uh, factory or terror industry, let's say. And people don't realize this, that Pakistan as a country, their whole economy is actually run on terrorism and the military and their intelligence services actually runs it. And even the, their prime minister is just a puppet. So people don't know sort of the, the breakdown of the Pakistani state. Um, and if they knew it, I think they would be very alarmed with foreign policy, US foreign policy in that region especially. And thinking that Pakistan was gonna be this great ally in their fight against terrorism is such a joke because they are the very ones who are actually funding and supporting the Taliban. Well, right. If I could butt in quickly, they yeah. came, the ISI came on my radar um, researching 9-11. And maybe you know Ooh. this, that it's out there that the head of the ISI, um, Mahmoud Ahmed, in 2001, wire transferred $100,000 to one of the hijackers in 9-11. They were, they were trained. Uh, so, uh, number one, so Pakistan has a lot of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Islamic terror training camp. This is known pretty, it's, this is uh, open. Uh, people in foreign policy knows this. They, the U.S. government knows this all too well. So these training camps are training the future Osamas. That's one thing. And then the second is, where was Osama being given refuge? <laughs> uh, it yeah, wasn't they... in Tehran. It wasn't in <laughs> Moscow. Right. It was right. in, 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 in Islamabad. So uh, you have to ask yourself, if they're giving refuge to and funding and uh, you know training, uh, they're not an ally. You know they're really the the bad guy here. Well, and I think maybe Trump is the first one that has at least uh, cut that funding and is you know I think he's pressuring Imran Khan to take care of this little terror situation that they have going on because it's not just India's problem. I think people think oh this is just India's problem. No, it's a problem for the world. This is the international jihad movement. This is the backbone of it. Uh, so you, you've got to understand the makeup, I think, and then things are very clear. So you think Imram Khan is just like an ISI puppet of the security state? He's not really his own man or his own leader? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't think I know because every single Pakistani prime minister, uh, you know, and also, by the way, the U.S. also, ha also has a say because the deep state will, will use Pakistan as a buffer. And sadly, against India, you know, they, a rising strong India is not what the deep state wants. It might be what the U.S. government wants, absolutely, and the leadership wants, but, but, and the people, but, but not that, you know, not those people, right, the, the ones that do want the wars and all that. Uh, they don't see India as a, a, an ally. They see them as some sort of competitive threat in some way. So they want to use rogue states 
that are dispensable, uh, you know, use them as they like, and that's why the funding comes. So, so I, I want to see more. Uh, I want to see a serious stop of the funding and uh, some serious uh, kind of ramifications of this terrorism has to stop. I mean, even during this crisis, you know, in Af Afghanistan, sadly, has had multiple attacks. Uh, there was a Sikh mosque that got blown up. And uh, then the latest was a maternity ward. Are you kidding me? Babies and mothers got blown up because they were Shia and not Sunni. I mean, this is the sort of the, 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 this is a bad idea that we're dealing with. And, at, you know, I, I really, I don't know what your thoughts about this Afghan deal is, but it is atrocious. It is a really horrific peace deal. It's not a peace deal at all. It's a, a, a sort of you're signing off, say you're destroying that whole region. Um, look, whether you have U.S. troops or some troops, but you cannot leave a vacuum there because the vacuum is going to be, there are hawks and vultures already around just waiting to take your place and they're not going to be the good guys. So I think it's a very, very dangerous deal. I hope they reneg on it. I hope they tear it up and come up with something else. Yeah, well, I mean, that part of the world and especially the Pakistan-Afghan border, it's always this dance between um, you know, the Taliban, the Afghan government, and then ISI, the Pakistani government, they just, they just keep doing musical chairs and it goes on and on and on. And, you know, the, the pretext for America being in Afghanistan yeah. was 9-11, which happened uh, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And there, there does have and to come... And before that, the Soviet Union, too. Right, and the, the Soviets Union. were in there, and, and they, couldn't, they couldn't get it done against yeah. in, in Afghanistan. Everyone, everyone lost. Afghanistan is where you go to lose. That's the, the killer of... It's called the killer of empire, you know? It is, it is yeah. And I just feel... So, so America, uh, American lives have to be lost in Afghanistan, and trillions have to continue to be spent to what end? Like, for how long? Indefinitely? Forever? I mean, that's... And, they're, and they don't know who their enemy is. I think this is what I fear with this U.S. military. They don't know who their allies are. They don't know who their adversaries are. Quite honestly, recently, they've, I think they've abandoned their allies and they're sort of in bed with their adversaries as all of this is unfolding. Um, the Afghan government, the, the duly elected, the, the, the Ashraf Ghani government is very good. And uh, I, have, I know a lot of Af Afghani people. They're wonderful people and their leadership their NSA, who I, I, I met a lot of their people earlier in Delhi, where I spoke at this sort of um, global summit, and they had even the Iranian foreign minister was there. Uh, they had heads of state from everywhere, and we were able to sort of uh, dine and chat with them. I was sitting next to the Russian ambassador and all that good stuff. But, um, you know, uh, they, they're very good people that want to do the best, and their Afghani people have such great spirit, and their army is very capable. The problem is, um, the, the Afghan Taliban, propped up by the ISI um, and the Pakistani government and, and other players, uh, don't uh, let the Afghan government do their, their job in sort of resurrecting that. Because that is a country that's very rich in uh, all kinds of resources. It could be, mm -hmm. be one of the wealthiest countries in the world. So, and also, don't forget, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why even Soviet Union and even the U.S. is there. I think people don't want to talk about it, but you know, we all know what's going on there. The war is just the front. There's well, the, the war there. is the front for the international drug trade for heroin and yes, the poppy the opium, fields. Opium. Yep, Opioids. 80% 80, 80 of the heroin yeah, in the yeah. world comes from Afghanistan. In my small state of New Hampshire, we have a terrible epidemic opioid of people addiction, dying yeah. from opioid addiction. 
And I tell people, oh. chances are that that opium came from Afghanistan. Who's in charge of Afghanistan right now? How does that heroin get out of the yeah. country and come yeah. here? Yeah. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and it certainly, I mean, as far as who America's enemy is, it like it changes with the wind. You know, it, it just, we had Al Qaeda that we had to be afraid of and the Taliban. And now we're cutting deals with the Taliban. Now ISIS is our enemy. You know, behind a, a lot of that is Saudi Arabia. And that's another big thing that, uh, you know, um, and other, uh, I mean, I think people always, they, they, they always talk about the kingdom. There's other smaller, very rich Arab oil countries as well that- well, The Gulf states. Funded. Yes, they yeah. funded, but they're, they're, they're subversive about it. I think Saudi ends up being like this big sort of front for it, but there are other, um, uh, you know, nations that I, I'd be more worried about. Uh, I mean, I must say, I, I like MBS. I think- uh, or more ways than one. I also, I think like Israel-Saudi relationship has improved. India-Saudi relationship has improved. Suddenly, you know, all these countries are really getting along. Uh, they need to. They these they cannot be adversaries because I can tell you with the OIC countries, they have been very antagonistic towards you know a country like India, for example, because it's it's not a Muslim country. But this is the first time where they're all unanimously. Um, they are. They support India. They back India. They see India as an ally. We have nine million Indians who work in the Gulf, uh, and they like Modi. They like the government, uh, which is a, a real uh, change from what it used to be. It used to be really, really uh, just uh, sinister and uh, bad policies and kind of disliking them because they happen to be of, of a different religion. And if that has gone out the window, I think they're seeing India for the great power that it is, and they realize that they must work with India. And I think they genuinely like Modi because all of these countries have given him this uh, a lot of awards and stuff, and they, they don't just do that for anyone. Yeah. They, they didn't do that for other previous Indian prime ministers at all. None of them ever got any of these awards from the Arab world. So it's a, that's a big step. Yeah, I mean, MBS, uh, he's a young guy. He's like my age. And I think they've, yeah. worked, they've worked pretty hard to like, um, you know, his create his image and like mold him as some reformer. And he's like a big liberal and he's going to open up Saudi Arabia and women are going to get rights. And I'm in some ways, because my, my, I have family over there. Uh, it's changed a lot. I mean, I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in all of these countries. Uh, it, it's, much, it's very different today. Sure, it, it, might, it might be a little better, but they're, they're still yeah. beheading people in the streets. Women are still yeah. being killed. But they, and, but, they, but, they, but they do that in other, they do that in Pakistan too. Well, of, cor in of course, like, yeah. That's not, the, that's not a Saudi problem. That's an no. Islamic issue. You know, of right? course, but I mean, Saudi. look, Saudi Arabia, I mean, no, right no, now. That's the, a law for you. And that's this uh, uh, Yeah. Kind of Wahhabism. Wahhab Wahhabist, yeah, the Wahhabist strain is, is especially it's dangerous and toxic. It happens in Shia countries too, that's the thing. It, people think that it's only terrorism is the domain only of the Sunnis, not true. No. It, no. Shias have both. And they, each other, there's a lot of intra faith mm -hmm. genocide and, and violence yeah. which people don't want to talk about. Um, sure. Um, but my, my umbrage is, um, I'm sure you saw this in the news, another name came out who was part of the Saudi government who was involved with helping the hijackers on 9-11. So people within the Saudi Arabian royal family and the government played, played a greater role in making 9-11 happen. And that's being covered up because yeah. of the 
relationship we have with the kingdom. They have the oil. Um, you know, there's many, it's even beyond oil, but you know, I'm friends with a lot of people who lost people on nine 11. I'm friends with survivors. And, uh, that's a tough, that's a tough pill to swallow. If you're somebody who was in those towers and you lost people and you survived and there's people in Saudi Arabia who are running free right now who were involved in the attacks. Well, but uh, the uh, the thing is that so on September uh, 11, uh, so America found out about Islamic terrorism. Uh, India has known about it for a thousand years. These happened; they've happened forever since the inception because that's the violent part of this ideology is that the global it's the jihad. It's in the name of the faith. It's okay to uh, destroy life of the non-believer. This is their they genuinely believe in this and. You know these these jihadis. Uh, they're not like kind of hallucinating and conjuring up. Uh, I mean, they're reading stuff in a mm -hmm. book that is their holy book, and they're enacting it. It's very clear. And I think sometimes uh, what I've noticed in the West, and especially with the left, they want to kind of say that it has nothing to do with religion when it has everything to do with religion. Because guess what? Other religions aren't doing it. I mean, they're they may all be flawed in some way, but they're. I mean, it's not a Part of the religion to, uh, you know, the, the, the kafir, which is a non-believer, uh, I think with this ideology, they are the most hostile to them. And even the, the, the value of life of the non-believer is almost non-existent. That's why they can blow someone up and it's okay. They haven't done anything wrong because the person seems half faith, you know. So it's very dangerous uh, ideology and yeah, well, a lot of religions can can lean on their religion and their dogma to justify violence. I mean, every religion has yeah. that. You have Christian extremists yeah. who bomb and shoot yeah. up abortion clinics. You have, obviously, with Islamic terrorism, you have, um, I I view what the IDF does to the Palestinians, I view that as terrorism. I mean, the way the way they treat the Palestinians and shoot children and, and, and you know, to me, that that's, that's cold-blooded terrorism. So it, people use their religion for that. And as someone who doesn't have religion, you know, I'm kind of able to step back and see that. And, and I like to call it out when it happens for all religions. But then, but then communism killed more people than all religions put together. And that wasn't a religion. That was an ideology. Yeah, it was, it was a stupid political ideology. Political system. And, and a, a lot of uh, people who love to criticize, uh, I mean, communists are very anti-religion, ironically, right? But they are more dangerous and violent in some ways than organized religions themselves when you look at China and you look at you know different sort of communist regimes and the, the, the damage that they've done um, I, for, for me uh, you know sort of uh, the I think when you're Indian and a Hindu especially all of this sort of this kind of terrorism is all too real we've had many 9-11s and for a thousand years we've had lots of attacks just based purely on religion that uh, mm -hmm. even you know we, we, they don't talk about it in history books and the world is only now starting to realize um, sort of, you know, the trajectory and the, the, sort of the manifestations of, you know, I, I'm picking on this because, yes, I think other faiths have, have been, yeah, you, you look at the Crusades, but that was 2,000 years ago. And you look at the, 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 the prevalent sort of kind of terrorism today, and it is one kind. And I think to lump other faiths uh, as just as bad is very dangerous and I, I see the left doing that and actually they go further they shield it you know in the name of phobia now you can't even have these conversations that you're having because they would 
it would be deemed as being you know phobic when it's not we're having very uh, honest conversations that need to be had yeah. in our society today because the problem is staring at us and the more we um the stuff it underneath uh, it's the, the dragon that's going to emerge is worse and this is also what causes xenophobia and you know real uh, real phobia the real bigots come out because they just they've had it when you keep repressing repressing and saying no 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 it's not you know it's not them and and uh, they're just poor brown people i, I mean not, this such moronic comments that don't even make sense and aren't even factually true and then it's that that redneck is going to say i i don't like this you know what is going on you know then the next time there's a church attack i think he's going to pick up a gun and do something so you're, you're yeah. seeing this unfold. Yeah. So what, um, <clears throat> what's your take on Vladimir Putin in Russia? What do you think uh, Putin's <laughs> after? And what, you know, what, what do you think his ultimate goals are? I mean, I, I personally think that uh, it's totally overblown in our media. They're the boogeyman right yeah. now. We have to blame yeah, all the yeah, world's yeah. problems on Russia. And of course, Definitely. us Tulsi Gabbard supporters, we were called Russian assets. She's a Russian yeah. agent. You know, anyone who is perceived as wanting to have peace, and get yeah. along with uh, the second largest nuclear arsenal on planet Earth is like called crazy and a Putin sympathizer. Yeah. So from your perspective, well, how do you view Vladimir Putin and how does overall, uh, how do you view Modi and Putin's relationship? Ah, uh, very interesting. It's funny, when I was at that, um, at that uh, summit earlier this year, I took a photo with the Russian ambassador and I posted it and I said, I guess I'm a Russian agent now. I mean, he was my dinner partner. We had a wonderful conversation about life and everything. And so the Soviet Union and India has a very, very special relationship. I think one thing that India has managed to do, with maybe, which maybe no other country has, is it has independent alliances with many random players. And, um, and they may be adversarial to each other, but India is sort of friends with them all. Or it's been non-aligned because the non-alignment movement, I guess, um, and it, it, you know, they didn't sign with NATO, but um, they sort of, the Soviet Union uh, also helped India a lot during our wars that we had. The U.S. did not. In fact, the 71 war, uh, which India won decisively, the Soviet Union supplied us with, with planes and everything that we needed. So I think we wouldn't have won many of the battles that we did without Russia's help. So we have a, there is a special spot in our hearts. I think India as a civilization, as a country, as certainly as a political uh, picture for Russia and especially Soviet Union. Um, so, uh, you know, they are not a threat to us, of course. And uh, uh, obviously China is, is a, a bigger adversary. Uh, we're not, I wouldn't say we're enemies. We have to have a good working relationship with China. But, but uh, Russia and India obviously are closer. Um, so Putin and Modi... I think they genuinely like and respect each other. Uh, I have not, I've been to Russia many times. I have, I have no issues. I, I, I cringe when people say that, that they are the, the greatest threat when I would say it's a, it's a rising imperialistic China and this Islamic terrorism. These are the greatest threats to humanity. It's not, it's not Moscow, you know. And, and I think people need to really uh, wake up and smell the coffee because the you know these things are you can do your some basic research and sort of find out what's the bad ideas in the world and who's the good yeah. guy and the bad guy and you don't have to be a rocket scientist <laughs> right um, right you know and i think india and russia is always going to 
have a good relationship. I think they should do more business. I think they should, um, in fact, maybe, I, I don't know if India will and should play this role, but in some ways it can be, it's the only player that can be an intermediary between um, the U.S. and Russia and also the U.S. and Iran. Because we have a very good relationship with Iran. We always had for, for a long time and even today. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it irks me when people want to target Iran or Russia uh, when there are other problems, uh, other regions in, in, the, in the world that are far more problematic and where the real terrorism is coming from. Yeah. So yeah, I, I hate I hate them calling you know building Russia as a boogeyman. I mean, my aunt's from Russia. My uncle married a Russian woman, and you know, growing up as a hockey player, a lot of my favorite hockey players as a kid were all Russians, and and they were all amazing hockey players. And that that's where I'm a big believer in soft power and cultural exchange. And I I, I want more of that. I want more of that with Iran. I want it with Russia. I want it with North Korea. Like I would, I would be willing to uh, go to North Korea dressed as Donald Trump if it stopped nuclear war. <laughs> you should do that. I know. that would be such pretty, a pretty. We are going to go over to North Korea. We're going to see Rocket Man. I'm going to bring him a Big Mac. I'm going to bring him a Big Mac because they don't have Big Macs in Pyongyang, I guess. But I'll bring him a Big Mac. We'll bring you over there. It'll be incredible. We'll show him some Bollywood movies. Yes. It'll be beautiful. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do a Bollywood dance with Rocket Man. <laughs> Dude, I think this will be the answer to world peace is exactly what you suggested. I think we'll all win the Nobel Peace Prize if we take the Donald. Uh, well, you really, right? Not the actual Donald. You oh, and me. I'm going to do some Pangra on the border. Or <laughs> we can but do a dance. But it's going to take that. It's going to take the soft power. It's going to take yes. love. It's going to take spirituality. It's going to take food, dance culture. Right. Uh, even when you look at uh, Pakistan and, and India, um, yeah. I mean, I think in the last few years, because of so much incessant terrorism, we finally sort of put an end to that. But for 70 years almost, you know, they, were, they are obsessed with Bollywood. They're obsessed with cricket. You know, that was the one thing that was, uh, you know, I mean, it was a, a genuine uh, uh, rivalry, but also a genuine brotherhood. Because sure. I mean, we, we don't have an issue with them. I think they don't want to be us. They think that, uh, you know, we have a 6,000-year civilizational lineage. They have a 70-year-old history, and they don't want to be a part of that 6,000-year-old And they say that, no, we came from elsewhere. When they didn't, you know. So I think they need to, there's a lack of acceptance on their part of who they are. They have no identity, you know, and we have a lot of identity. I think um, I, I could get Modi and Imran Khan together in a room. I could have them laughing in about 20 seconds, okay? We'd have a great time. I'll put on some Beatles. I'll bring some great beer from New Hampshire. And we will have world peace so quickly. It will make your head spin. <laughs> well, I think Modi is always laughing and smiling. I, I'm sure he's open for that. Imran Khan, maybe not so much. He's not, did you know that he was a famous cricket player? He I was did. Like he, he was Everyone a rock star, loved. yeah. Indians loved him, and he—I mean, I loved him. He was one of my favorite players. And now I see this guy on the floor of the UN declaring jihad, you know. And I think, what has happened? Is this the kind of world we live in? And I, I don't think it's from his soul. I think he's saying what he needs to say. But the fact that he is even saying these things and sort of demonizing India in the way that he does when they are. 
like the most dangerous country in the world. And he doesn't have a right to talk about anything, you know, minorities, religion, blah, blah, blah. I mean, really uh, talk about, you know, hypocrisy here. It's just so sad that it's kind of degraded to this level. Uh, you know, I mean, nobody actually takes them seriously. But uh, there's a lot of venom there that was spewed, I think, sometimes. Or, yeah. And uh, it's like... Well, you know, I... I I really believe in the power of like personal connections among leaders. I mean, I loved, I absolutely loved when Donald Trump met with Kim Jong-un and I loved when he went over to the DMZ and they walked across the border together. You know, I shared it on social media and I said, a walk to remember, a walk to remember pretty. It was so was neat. Do they hold hands? <laughs> I, I kind of wanted them to like hold hands, or maybe he could pick Rocket Man up and have him on his back. Look, I got my I got my stepson Rocket Man for the day. Okay, Aww, we're we're, so we're doing cute. a walk to remember. It's the greatest walk. It's the highest rated walk ever on network television. Okay, <laughs> but I like I like when Trump does things like that. I like when he's outside the box and he essentially yeah. gives him he gives a middle finger to the foreign policy establishment of D.C. Yeah. and he pisses yeah. off everybody. And yeah. and if I had Trump's position of power, his influence, I'd be doing a lot of those same things. So, um, and, and that's why I love about Tulsi. She met with uh, yes. Bashar al-Assad. She went to Syria. She had the guts yeah. to go over there and look at it for herself. She met with opposition. She met with Christians. Yeah. She met with uh, Assad and his people. Yeah. And she got a clear view of it. And I tell people, I would give anything to have had a member of Congress go to Iraq yeah. leading up to the Iraq war in 2001 and then take a look around before we actually decided to go over there and, and overthrow Saddam and then launch another regime change war and destroy Iraq and lose six, over 6,000 American, American lives, probably kill well over a million Iraqis and destroy a country in an endless war. Well, a leader is supposed to be a statesman. They're supposed to be uh, diplomatic. They're supposed to listen to people, have mm -hmm. conversations, uh, you know, bring people together. And how are you going to do that? Uh, you know, unless you have dialogue. Uh, and I think she went over there with not just by, I think there were other people or mm -hmm. in the last several years, other American politicians have also gone to Syria and met with the same people that she did. Mm -hmm. So I think um, uh, demonizing her just by association is, is horrible. Now, with Assad is one thing, but I think this demonization that, that comes from the left, did, did her sort of... Um, meeting with or, or associating with, with Prime Minister Modi is a whole new level of moronic because here is a global leader that I think everybody respects or most leaders respect. Oh, so many American politicians have taken pictures with him. I mean, he's visited the States many times uh, and he's a rock star and, you know, the his people love him. And at the end of the day, who, whose uh, um, opinion matters more? The, the Indian, whether it's the Indian farmer or the Indian billionaire or, uh, or, the, or the Indian American like myself who knows what's been happening in India for the past 70 years or this um, journalist in an in a, in a air-conditioned office in New York that has never been to India, does not speak the language, has no interest in Indian politics, but just wants to write a smear piece. And this is what's happening in Western media and in uh, parts of uh, the, uh, let's say, parts of the left, let's say, you know, uh, just smearing for no reason, and there's nothing to back it up, and the evidence always overwhelmingly is opposite of that. You know, every time they, they make these claims, when you do the research, the, the research is, is, the evidence is 
it's quite the the other way around and you find out oh shit he actually did a lot of good things for he, he has done more for minorities than the uh, than the past administrations for example and uh, all that good stuff you know which people don't want to talk about so it was just particularly uh, offensive and uh, i think a bit despicable for me to see all of this play out and and they continue to do it with the Kashmir, with the 370, and all these things that the government has taken, uh, steps that had to be taken, and they were taken in a democratic way, uh, huge, uh, uh, I mean, uh, everybody voted for it. Even the opposition leaders voted for it because this is the right thing for the country, and these things had to be done long time ago, and finally they got done, and suddenly you're, uh, I mean, this is one step in the in the direction of human rights and even more secularism and even more protection and uh, minority rights and so on and yet the headlines are quite the opposite and we can't do anything about it uh, all we can do is that they get tired and they just find something else to to chase after you know yeah yeah absolutely i mean i know i, I was uh it was it was uh, entertaining it was interesting to see trump's uh reception in india i mean he went over oh, there wow. he was love him over there. <laughs> look I, I went i went over to india okay and i had like a million people in the stadium for me this thing was like 10 times bigger than the beatles during beatlemania okay it was unbelievable modi was so nice he said the nicest things about me you could really tell you could really tell that the king and modi they love each other they do but also remember modi is is a genius politician he, <laughs> he regardless of what he um feels in his heart. I mean, he's a smart guy. You know, he's also a very spiritual guy. He knows right from wrong. Even if he doesn't agree with, you know, character, personality, he knows that uh, he, he look, that Trump is a tool. He knows that. And he, he plays that very well. And he also realizes that the two countries need to get closer and work together. Sure. And because also, tomorrow they'll be, there may be a new president and he has to, to do the same. Yeah. He will do that. You know, he Obama loved him, and mm -hmm. he liked Obama too, right? So, right. Uh, and I, I'm sure. Um, well, Bernie is a different story. Thing. I don't know your thoughts about Bernie, but I think he, his some of his um, dances uh, to do with you know this whole India and Kashmir was really just uh, uh, ain't gonna. It, I don't think so. <laughs> I have yeah. respect for him. Well, he was very mis misinformed and <clears throat> he was pandering. Yeah. It was I don't think he's one who panders, but he thought, Oh, I wanna get this vote, I wanna get that vote and you should never do that because I think you hurt other constituencies, which is what happened in this case. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Bernie is right on about a lot of his domestic policies. I mean, I, I certainly want to see Medicare for all Americans. Um, I want to see marijuana legalized. I would like to see the Federal Reserve audited. Uh, you know, I'd like to see less government encroachment and, you know, our government be better on civil liberties. But foreign policy wise, I, I wasn't. And that's why I was with Tulsi, because Tulsi has a better yeah. grasp on foreign policy, uh, not yeah, only in her, her own strength, Her strength was foreign policy. Yeah, her, her grasp of foreign policy yeah. and her military experience yeah. and serving on the Armed Services Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, meeting with world leaders, meeting with Modi, meeting with Assad. Um, she had it over Bernie. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not surprised about Bernie's foreign policy. I mean, he, he did vote against the Iraq war when he was in the house, which I give him credit for that took, in my opinion, took a lot of guts. 
and was not a very popular thing to do in America at that time. So he was, he was right about that, in my opinion. True. And, uh, but anyway, uh, you can see in the, if you follow the UK politics, same thing happened to Labour and Corbyn. I and mean, they were overdoing it with all of mm. this sort of uh, identity crap. Mm -hmm. And it, the UK political system is very uh, it's ab uh, abrasive. I think uh, they're like, you've got different minority groups that are actually uh, very hostile to each other and they're louder. And it's just more, I think Americans, I've always noticed they are formal. They are sort of the puritanicals. And I like that. I just think they're more diplomatic. Um, uh, you go to UK is like, oh, wow, you know, people there don't sugarcoat anything. And uh, mm. there's just more hostility. Maybe it's the weather. I don't know, but they're just more <laughs> hard and rough, you know. Um, and uh, there's a difference. And there, it's like these. Um, there's nothing subversive in the UK. If there's an issue, it's in your face. Here, it's very kind of under the, the sheet. Mm -hmm. It's there, but no one wants to talk about. It, no one's, you know. Um, yeah. it's, it's very interesting. And I think it blew. It totally backfired. And I hope that the DNC takes a cue because they're going in that direction where they're sort of alienating certain groups. They're overdoing it to the others. They're choosing to ignore facts and some serious issues. And then you have all kinds of lawmakers coming in, uh, introducing laws that are maybe not compatible to America and the American state, right? And the value system and all that, which I think is dangerous. I think you be careful um, who you elect. And I think this election and all the, even the House and Senate, I think there's going to be a turn there for sure. Yeah. So what's, uh, <clears throat> I've done a lot of research into this. What's your take on uh, Jeffrey Epstein? Oh, okay. that's, that's such a random question. Came out of nowhere. Uh, look, I mean, this, these are bad guys. You know, he's, he's got uh, guilty written all over him. I think people, uh, knew what he was he knew what people were up to more like and he i think the hillary uh clan let's say i mean i think clearly they weren't very impressed i almost feel like he was about to uh disclose some stuff that would be incriminating and he, he was taken out before that ever happened which means that the deep state has a very very deep hands you know and arms because they govern places that you wouldn't expect that they would um yeah i think it was some it wasn't obviously not suicide. I think there was there was more to it, and we will never find out until maybe one day somebody writes a book, and nobody's really investigating it. I think they've moved on to well this, because of this virus, nobody's talking. The virus itself, there's so so many conspiracies. I mean, there are people who don't even believe there's a virus. There are people who think um, it's a bioweapon. There are people who think it came out of disgusting eating habits. Uh, there are people who think the U.S. is behind it. They funded these labs. So there's a multitude of different conspiracies. Yeah. Right. Well, Epstein, I will say there are people researching it. Have you heard of Whitney yeah. Webb? No, but I should look her up. Check out Whitney Webb. Uh, check out Jason Burmis, um, Last American Vagabond. They're, they're all doing incredible research wow. and work, work into Epstein. And they actually have been talking to a, a woman named Rhea Farmer who was an Epstein victim and she was the first victim to go to the FBI in 1996. Wow. So there's a, there's a lot more to that story and it's uh, definitely something I've been paying close attention to. And it really, 
gets to the heart of power and the way power works in the United right. States. And Epstein had dirt and blackmail on the most powerful people in media, the most powerful people in government, uh, military. I mean, he had he had a lot of people compromised. So there were a lot of people who wanted him dead. So I certainly, uh, when he when he was arrested, I couldn't believe they arrested him. That was I couldn't even believe like finally he was arrested. And then when he turned up dead, it was like ah, uh, okay. <laughs> You know, the deep state. Yeah. <laughs> the, the deep state. Or, or, I mean, it's all one and the you know, it's kind of a the peripheries, let's say, of the deep state. Yeah. yeah well, you know, you, you get to a point where you realize um, our government is is just you know really just a it's it's a, it's mobs of criminals and and, and yeah. gangsters and oligarchs who have uh, some of the same interests and then have competing interests and you know the U.S. taxpayer and the average American person is not really aware of it. They're just, we're kind of fed, yeah. uh, fed our dose of the media, the narrative that's created and molded by the people who are guilty of the crimes. And they keep us dumbed down with sports and uh, TV and media and reality TV and yeah. just a, a, bu a bunch of nonsense. So um, there are still a lot of people who read between the lines and um, do a lot of, a lot I, of great, great research. I, I wish that people, uh, the masses knew how the world actually works, whether it's economy, world economies, uh, or politics, or real power, because uh, it's a different game being played over there on that level. And I think right. citizens are innocent, they're naive, they trust, mm -hmm. they, they really genuinely think, I'm going to vote for this guy, he's going to, you know, even if that guy is good, what about his superior? And they just don't know how the great game of the world is being played and has been for thousands of years it's always been like that and yeah. it's only people at the top who obviously once you're in it you know and then if you're at the very top you are actually playing that game and it's very exciting <laughs> uh you know and the more well, in my case you know the more uh greater leaders i meet and uh, you know these high level events that i go to i mean you see everything you see you know i mean i this is so i will share a me too Sort of story with you. I mean, this is like a really high-end event where all these foreign ministers around the world are all there, and you know, we have a big gala dinner, whatever. I'm meeting and you know, whining, dining with them, but and they're all chatting to me and stuff. And then one of them was like, uh, uh, "Hey, uh, let's go to the bar, and you know, let's, you know, I can I get you a champagne?" Or I said, "Okay." And I mean, okay. So if you're talking about life, politics, everything, it's 3 a.m. right, and I'm enjoying a champagne. You know, everything's very respectful, and this guy just looks at me and says, do you want to, you know, uh, come, o come over to my room? I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? This is like a foreign policy summit. We're trying to talk about wars and genocides here. And, and you're asking me to come to your room? I mean, I'm like, you're three times my age, man. You have grandkids. And also, <laughs> this, is, this, is in, this is India, or this is New Delhi. There is a cop standing outside. If I tell him what you just told me, he's not going to ask me questions. They're going to, you will be arrested. Trust me, India is very tough on laws in that way. So, um, I mean, he, he took the, the chance to, to sort of um, even ask, he hmm. post me too. Like, are you serious after everything, that, after Weinstein and Epstein, like this? So it tells me that men are the same. They're never going to change. Human beings are the same. And in this game of politics and Hollywood, is it's just people are uh, completely um, taken over by power, yeah. sex and money. It's always going to be that. And drugs, too, if you want to throw that in there, right? So no matter, it's always going to be like that. And I think 
if you're a clean person like myself, I, I have to walk into these situations and just do the take the high road, do the right thing, but not be shocked because that would be naive to think that suddenly I'm I'm we're living in a pure world. We won't be, and I shouldn't be disheartened either. This this is a game. Play it as clean as I can and do my dharma and do what I need to do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that that's uh, well. I'm glad you got out of that situation. I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry that happened. Uh, you know, I, I tell you, it's it's it must it must be very very tough to be a very beautiful woman. I mean, I wouldn't know. You know, it must be very tough. <laughs> it must be tough to be pretty, pretty, right? I I got I got to meet meet the Donald one day and ask him about Modi. I think that that would be interesting. Oh, that'd be great. Well, before we wrap up here, uh, tell the viewers where they can find you, uh, your website, social media, uh, you know, how can people support you and find you? Yes. Thank you so much. Um, so my book is coming out at, at some point this year. I will definitely keep everybody informed and let them know where they can find it. So you can find me on a, in a variety of ways. Uh, I'm on Facebook. It's just my name, Preeti Utala. Twitter handle is Preeti Upala, but two U's, so it's U-U-P-A-L-A. -A. Uh, Instagram is Preeti U. Uh, YouTube, I have my own channel. Just type my name in and my channel will come up. Please subscribe. I have tons of interviews and good content there. Um, I write for like 20 different outlets. So you just Google my name and write journalists or articles or any specific Iran, Afghanistan, Kashmir, US, India, whatever. And Hundreds, if not more, will, of articles will come up. Um, I have my own radio show, The Eternal Hour, on iHeartRadio, and also The Pretty Experience. But that's on YouTube. Uh, and I speak around the world, and I try to get content or footage of my talks and put them up as well. My website is being designed right now, but it will be prettyupala.com. And just email me and just uh, uh, get in touch. I'll, I'll leave my email address if you like. It's M-I-S-S-E dot productions with an s at the end at gmail.com and uh, reach out i'd love to hear from you guys your take uh, questions if you have any and i just like to engage so i would be honored to hear from your fans yeah, well absolutely I i've really enjoyed our conversation it's been great having you on and nice to connect with you and um you know if you're ever out in new england uh, the northeast you want to come by new hampshire there's a great indian restaurant in manchester that tulsi took me to wow um a few months ago before this whole virus thing i never had indian food before it was my first time and uh really enjoyed it it was really good was it spicy for you or it was mild uh you know i i i, I do okay with spicy food but it was it, i didn't go like too too spicy but if if uh you know you have recommendations i'll certainly i won't uh, i wouldn't rule anything out but uh yeah it's been, it's been great talking to you so check uh preeti upala out on all of her social media and her youtube and uh it's been great talking to you so uh cheers to you and everybody you. Uh, for watching thank you for watching jackman radio and please hit that subscribe button Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash jackmanradio. And we will be back with you again soon. So all of you stay safe, stay happy, and enjoy yourselves. Thank you very much. Ooh, namaste. Thank you.